Hi, and welcome back to a new episode in a brand shift story. I hope you all have had a great start of this new year, 2022. I myself am in quite good health in general. I've managed to fracture a couple or more of my ribs on a stroll in the woods. Uh, they say that it's slippery when wet, but I can assure you that it's uh, really slippery when icy too. So over here we got minus degrees on average at the moment, and I'm looking forward to a warmer spring to be honest. Let me start by thanking people who have reached out and follow the series on Instagram. Insta is my chance to better illustrate some details in this experience and to complement the audio releases. And thanks to you, the listener of this podcast series, of course. It's hard to understand how many there are of you out there tuning in now and then. But uh, English is a global spoken language. And I can see movement across many borders, which is fun. Brian's story is appreciated in many distant corners of our world. And rightly so. Uh, I'm also amazed by the interest in the US. It's uh, captivating for me that people on your land find it interesting to listen to my accent-broken monologues. But uh, I'm improving and struggling to deliver news, ideas and coverage to you in Ohio, Illinois, California, Virginia, Minnesota, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, when larger numbers have decided to tune in. But really, you seem to tune in from all the other states too. So, an homage for this. And also cheers to the rest of you up in Canada and elsewhere. So, in the Brian Schiffer community out there, and following other creator content, a big talkie was the revelation pre-Christmas of Brian's odd moment when standing outside the bar with the two girls. The new HLN episode showed the previously older clips with a new angle, you could say. So I'll go through my take on that incident later in this episode. Also, we have received news in a lesser well-known disappearance. That one of Bill Evasco. He was a businessman in his 60s from Marietta, Georgia, who in 2010 flew over to California to hike in the Joshua Tree National Park. He had set an appointment to meet his fiance for supper, but never showed up. After the alarm was eventually sounded, and despite massive searches during the years, nothing was unearthed. But a few days ago, human remains with his wallet and ID were discovered. Apparently Bill had strayed far from the trails of the park, with rescuers describing it as bizarre to why he had chosen that rugged path. And in another huge true crime mystery, the vanishing of Brandon Lawson in 2013, we also received much wanted news. And take note, it's not the Brandon Swanson which I've talked about a couple of times on this podcast, but Brandon Lawson's case has fascinated the true crime community, particularly with his 911 call circulating around the web and his subsequent vanishing. The call has been kind of difficult to decipher completely, but Brandon mentions his out of gas, 
with one or more men chasing after him. And he demands police assistance. By the sound of it and other conclusions, it is believed he was under the influence of heavy drugs while making a call. Later his brother Kyle, who had come to say it with fuel, couldn't locate Brandon anywhere near the scene. And subsequent searches yielded no results in whatever had happened to Brandon or of his whereabouts. So the other day, fortunately, an area that previously had been searched was recombed and findings of shoes and pants were made. The private search party called authorities who returned to the scene and discovered human remains. It will take DNA examination a month to reveal if the remains belong to the missing 26-year-old, but the family has already come out saying that, in our hearts, we know it's Brandon. So hopefully this investigation can later provide answers if this was an act of foul play, or if similar anomalies that might have caused Christopher Tompkins, Dennis Arda, and Terence Woods to go missing is the case here. And mentioning Terence Woods, I researched enough of this disappearance to release a full episode about that case. Interesting and mysterious as it is, it helps to gather more viewpoints and outcomes to decipher what ultimately could have happened to the main protagonist in this podcast, Brian Schaefer. Needless to say, Brandon Lawson was, despite all the efforts, located in an area previously searched, and nearby his last known location. How many times haven't you heard me say that? And it needs to be reiterated that nothing irrefutable can be drawn from authorities, concluding that the person so-and-so is not there because they looked there already and had cadaver dogs run through. That's not the decisive plot to the story. It's basically just a common denomination and a botched chapter in the narrative in many of these cases. Primo Zanoli was found by private detectives within 24 hours after police had claimed they had looked carefully for him for three years. Denis Arda was missed too by authorities and found by private citizen scavenging the forest entirely at random. The adorable Jericho Binks, mentioned in the Denis Arda episode, wasn't discovered by law enforcement after their so-called effort, but by a hiker who found her remains in close vicinity to her last known location. Jacob Connor was missed too in the same area where he was last seen and later discovered by a work party in the woods. In Brian Schaefer's own mystery, we have a potentially hazardous area we know he was in close proximity to when heading out through this alternative back exit. The sense back then was that law enforcement were incredulous of Brian exiting through that construction site to the outside in the first place because of the difficulty in navigating yourself out. So searches were made, but with a routine sense that Brian most likely had left by other means. Many years later, however, this construction exit became the only apparent way Brian could have exited out without being seen. I still partly share the same disbelief the investigators had back then, when they actually ran through that building looking for him. That they didn't find him then doesn't automatically square things out today, all these years later. If something outside the building would have caught a glimpse of Brian Schaefer, I'd be the first one to acknowledge. But with so many years passing and no answers provided at all, 
what transpired when Brian was 16 is most likely the secret puzzle to figure this one out. Is what happened ultimately a clever, calculated move by Brian? Or was he caught up by something he didn't foresee and was unsuccessful in whatever attempt he undertook? As of now, the four corners of that premise are most likely part of the solution. And if not, it's hard to speculate on an alternate scenario that doesn't involve our main protagonist actively participating in whatever took place that night. The Brian Schaefer saga definitely continues. The video recording showing Brian Schaefer riding up the escalators is probably the most watched moving images of escalators in the history of the world. They show the moment Brian and his friend Clint and Meredith arrive at Aglitona Salona Bar at 1.15am on April the 1st, 2006. The images are so overused, blurry and pixelated and have been copied and disseminated for so many years that it is hardly significant for how they looked when they were released to the media over 15 years ago. That it's even Brian Schaefer we get to see, we almost have to trust. In the part on this podcast about the HLN episode that was to be released, I went on to mention that the video sequences they show when Brian Schaefer is riding up the escalators are the most clear, sharp and high resolution images I've seen so far. For the first time, you can really discern that it is Brian Schaefer who's standing there. You can even see his facial features when he turns right towards the bar entrance. And you immediately notice the clothes that he was wearing that night when he went missing. A pair of blue jeans, white tennis shoes, a green shirt over a long-sleeved white shirt. That these rolling images have been looked at over and over again by anyone who finds Brian Schaefer's case interesting is an understatement. But I myself discovered a little detail that I had missed all the other times when I gazed upon this older footage. Namely, that both Brian and the police officer seems to be checking out a woman who remarkably quickly makes her way up the escalators and then walks straight for this foyer without, so to speak, devoting a second's thought to the bar entrance that was by the right side. If you stare blindly at Brian, it's easy to miss this. It is quite interesting that a person arriving at 2am in the morning, largely at closing time, goes directly towards the same exit that we know Brian himself must have gone through. So that there were other things to analyze if you looked at moving images from that night was something I had begun to ponder. Unfortunately, these broken down clips were all we had to look at. 
from some informal routes, I learned that the HLN gained access to these newly polished video sequences through a called FOIA request directly to the Columbus Police Department. A FOIA is a formal application to see documents the police are in possession of regarding Brian Schaefer's case, which they cannot refuse public access to. Normally, the process is smoother with a press card as a registered journalist and part of the press corps. The same procedure took place from Kelly from the Brian Schaefer Dead or Alive podcast, where she similarly learned of the status of the case. That no one is actively working on Brian Schaefer's case to date within the Columbus police, and that his brother Derek in 2013 had Brian formally declared deceased. So in this vein, HLN apparently managed to get hold of the original video sequences. More moving images than we've seen over the years. Of course, Brian's arrival and when he's seen outside the bar are the highlights. But HLN actually also showed the man with the orange sweater, which was an important element in the case back in 06. So we get to see this giant on the footage. But note that in the same instance, we also get to see Clint and Meredith go down the escalators by themselves, with their friend Brian left behind. So back to the video clip showing Brian outside the bar on the foyer with the two girls, Amber and Brighton. This sequence takes place at 1.57am, a few minutes before the bar takes the last order and starts shuffling out their patrons out of the place. Brian has already left the bar. The clip ends with the trio turning towards the bar entrance, appearing to go back in. I saw so much speculation if they went back into the Aglatuna Saluna. From Brighton, however, we know that they never re-entered the bar again. She herself visited the ladies, and Brian hung out with Amber during that time outside the bar. When Brighton gets back, they leave, with Brian leaning against that fake wall of plywood, built to screen off the construction that was going on and that ultimately provided access to the back of the gateway building. So the clip lasted about 10 seconds earlier, but ran at a noticeably faster speed that makes movement look stranger than they are in real life. It shows Brian next to the two girls. They in turn have some heated mannerism between them, and they leave brusquely, with Brian standing still for a few seconds, and then he follows suit, and the clip ends. In the HLN section, the same clip was shown, but now, except in notably better resolution, even without clipped edges and in real time. The clip we've seen earlier is now revealed almost definitely edited. Brian is making a movement we haven't been able to gather prior. So what we see is occurring longer than before, and with Brian a few feet away from the police officer. Brian apparently looks at him, and then when cleared, puts his hand in his own pocket. He picks up what looks to be his phone, and as soon as Brighton turns around to walk away, Brian makes a quick movement with his hand, where he appears to drop his phone into Brighton's purse. By then, she stands facing away from him, with a bag against her shoulder, and doesn't pay attention. Brian then stands for a few seconds with his hands on his hip, without a hint that the phone is still in his possession. It's amazing to watch, and initially it raises a thousand questions. We know that the phone has never been found, and that we had these ambiguities with the phone pings. Of course, it also raises questions about Brighton. Like what? Did she have Brian's phone? And never announced that this was the case. Isn't that pretty weird? 
Did Brian think she was going to snoop out the phone so people could move in the wrong direction if they weren't looking for him? And that he in fact planned to leave that night? In subsequent debacle, Brighton was now alleged to be indirectly part of the plot by not reporting the finding when she discovered she had the phone. Nor did she mention anything in this regard when interviewed in 2019. With all of this occurring, the sense I had was to calm down. But the rolling images spoke for themselves, right? What I myself had was the realization that Brian's phone was turned off at 2.01am. And that was the last time Brian's phone was used. If Brighton turned off Brian's phone at 2.01, she knew that the phone had ended up in her bag. And then she's one way or the other in this plot deliberately. I got hold of the sequence and analyzed it back and forth. Looked at the more high resolution file on the mobile and re-ran the pictures on the TV to be able to see them in a larger format. Tills I saw it. And I can announce that we're back on the same square where we started. In the sequence, Brian certainly does this strange movement. But what you see is that just before he stands with his hand on his hip, a black object looms in his hand. A black object that hints that is the same phone he had just in his pocket. Presumably, Brian picked up the phone to check the clock. But the girls turn around in the same instance and are on their way. So this odd movement he does that looks like placing his phone in Brighton's purse is in fact a knock on her arm to get her attention. But it is subtle. But I'm almost entirely convinced that Brian's phone is left in his hand after the movement. But some of you will probably disagree after looking at the images. I posted an edited clip on Instagram so you can watch it and decide for yourself what you see or don't see. In the end, the implications that Brian slipped his cell phone into Brighton's purse that night without us finding out that was the case is too big. It's simply too astounding. And Brighton, acting totally oblivious to this fact, is astounding too. In subsequent conversations, it turns out that the private investigator, Don Corbett, never got to see or hear of this image sequence. If now the Columbus police, who originally edited the material and released it initially all these years ago, were not aware of this oddity, it speaks strongly that there are things out there that still needs to be looked at, reviewed and worked on. But almost everything the investigation has got hold of is confidential. Many are skeptical, for example, of the investigators claim that Brian is not seen leaving on any of the cameras that provided the video surveillance that night and subsequent days in and around the building and the bar. And they may have got more water to one's mill. This affair with Brian's strange movement should have been known a long time ago. It should have been there as a small but still known piece of the puzzle in this mysterious and almost inexplicable mystery that is the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. Thank you very much for listening, rating and following the series. For the next chapter in the story, see ya!